Hello and welcome to Kings and Queens, the podcast where we read, watch, play, and discuss history's favorite scream queens and literary kings of horror. My name is Nat and I am your host. Thanks for joining. This podcast initially will feel a bit like a book club. Every Sunday, we'll read a chapter of a horror novel and discuss what it all means within that horror universe. Now, I know in the trailer, I said we were going to start with Stephen King's Billy Summers, and I had every intention of doing so. However, I was recently gifted the 2023 publication, same author, and it's a branch of one of my all-time favorite series, Mr. Mercedes. For those of you that don't know, the Mr. Mercedes series is a three-book series that really just has a touch of some supernatural stuff, but it really focuses on Bill Hodges and some local crime. He's a detective, recently retired, and starting his own PI company, and he ends up meeting this character, Holly, in his ventures. Holly is a shy, reclusive, smaller woman that has a lot of growth of development in the series, uh, and they really become the best of friends, ultimately family, by the end of the series. We do end up losing Bill Hodges, which is heartbreaking, and I didn't really think it was going to go anywhere beyond that. Uh, but I want to read to you this, this little quote from Stephen King on the back cover here. Uh, it's only a few sentences, and I've never seen him describe his own work so minutely, but it's so touching. And I quote, I could never let Holly Gibney go. She was supposed to be a walk-on character in Mr. Mercedes, and she just stole the book and stole my heart. Holly is all her. So when I was planning this podcast, my, my initial goal was to read to you books that I had already read, you know, I knew them through and through and could truly discuss uh, what everything meant, tone, foreshadowing, things like that. But I was just too darn excited about this one. So we are going to read Holly together for the first time. At least I hope it's the first time for some of you. I've been going through and annotating and I would love to share this book and my thoughts and your thoughts together. Uh, so let's start chapter one. I will include chapter titles and parts as you listen along, and when you hear this sound, it means I've stopped reading from the text and I'm discussing thoughts and interpretation. When the sound replays, it means the mic is back to the author. So without further ado, let's begin chapter one of Stephen King's Holly. Chapter one. October 17, 2012, Part 1. It's an old city, and no longer in very good shape, nor is the lake beside which it has been built, but there are parts of it that are still pretty nice. Longtime residents would probably agree that the nicest section is Sugar Heights, and the nicest street running through it is Ridge Road, which makes a gentle downhill curve from Bell College of Arts and Sciences to Deerfield Park, two miles below. On its way, Ridge Road passes many fine houses, some of which belong to college faculty and some to the city's more successful business people, doctors, lawyers, bankers, and top-of-the-pyramid business executives. Most of these homes are Victorians, with impeccable paint jobs, bow windows, and lots of gingerbread trim. The park where Ridge Road terminates isn't as big as the one that sits splat in the middle of Manhattan, but close. Deerfield is the city's pride, and a platoon of gardeners keep it looking fabulous. Oh, there's the unkempt west side near Red Bank Avenue, known as the Thickets, where those seeking or selling drugs can sometimes be found after dark, and where there's the occasional mugging, but the Thickets is only three acres of 740. The rest are grassy, flowery, and threaded with paths where lovers stroll and benches where old men read newspapers, more and more often on electronic devices these days, and women chat, sometimes while rocking their babies back and forth in expensive prams. 
There are two ponds, and sometimes you'll see men or boys sailing remote-controlled boats on one of them. In the other, swans and ducks glide back and forth. There's a playground for the kiddies, too. Everything, in fact, except a public pool. Every now and then, the city council discusses the idea, but it keeps getting tabled. The expense, you know. This night in October is warm for the time of year, but a fine drizzle has kept all but a single dedicated runner inside. That would be Jorge Castro, who has a gig teaching creative writing and Latin American lit at the college. Despite his specialty, he's American born and bred. Jorge liked to tell people he was as American as P.A. de Manzana. For those who don't know, that is Spanish for apple pie. The irony is so sweet. He turned 40 in July and can no longer kid himself that he is still the young lion who had momentary bestseller success with his first novel. 40 is when you have to stop kidding yourself that you're still a young anything. If you don't, if you subscribe to such self-actualizing bullshit as 40 is the new 25, you're going to find yourself starting to slide. Just a little at first, but then a little more. And all at once, you're 50 with a belly poking out and your belt buckle and cholesterol busters in the medicine cabinet. At 20, the body forgives. At 40, forgiveness is provisional at best. Jorge Castro doesn't want to turn 50 and discover he's become just another American manslob. I feel like we need a trademark for that. You have to start taking care of yourself when you're 40. You have to maintain the machinery because there is no trade-in option. So Jorge drinks orange juice in the morning, potassium, followed most days by oatmeal, antioxidants, and keeps red meat to once a week. When he wants a snack, he's apt to open a can of sardines. They're rich in omega-3s, also tasty. He does simple exercises in the morning and runs in the evening, not overdoing it, but aerating those 40-year-old lungs and giving his 40-year-old heart a chance to strut its stuff. Resting heart rate, 63. Jorge wants to look and feel 40 when he gets to 50, but fate is a joker. Jorge Castro isn't even going to see 41. Now, I was really intrigued here with the way that he kind of compares his body to a machine or an automobile. It kind of implies that life itself does not come from a living vessel or a body, uh, but from what comes within. Chapter 1, Part 2, Page 2 His routine, which holds even on a night of fine drizzle, is to run from the house he shares with Freddy, theirs at least for as long as the writer-in-residence gig lasts, half a mile down from the college to the park. There he'll stretch his back, drink some of the vitamin water stored in his fanny pack, and jog back home. The drizzle is actually invigorating, and there are no other runners, walkers, or bicyclists to weave his way through. The bicyclists are the worst, with their insistence that they have every right to ride on the sidewalk instead of in the street, even though there's a bike lane. This was also pretty interesting to me. I grew up where I was blessed to live in a place with sidewalks where, as a kid, I could ride my bicycle on the sidewalk safely and not have to worry about, uh, you know, passing cars. Now, when I moved um, kind of out to the country, uh, I did not have the blessing of sidewalks, and I had to tell you, I missed it so much to the point where I would get angry seeing bicyclists on the street in a place that they were blessed with sidewalks. Uh, so this really kind of gave me some perspective. This evening, he has the sidewalk all to himself. 
He doesn't even have to wave to people who might be taking the night air on their grand old shaded porches. The weather has kept them inside. All but one, the old poet. She's bundled up in a parka even though it's still in the mid-fifties at eight o'clock because she's down to 110 pounds. Her doctor routinely scolds her about her weight and she feels the cold. Even more than the cold, she feels the damp. Yet she stays because there's a poem to be had tonight if she can just get her fingers under its lid and open it up. She hasn't written one since midsummer and she needs to get something going before the rust sets in. She needs to represent, as her students sometimes say. More importantly, this could be a good poem, maybe even a necessary poem. It needs to begin with the way the mist revolves around the streetlights across from her, and then progress to what she thinks of as the mystery, which is everything. The mist makes slowly moving halos, silvery and beautiful. She doesn't want to use halos because that's the expected word, the lazy word. Almost a cliché. Silvery, though, or maybe just silver. Her train of thought derails long enough to observe a young man at 89, 40 seems very young, go slap-slapping by her on the other side of the road. She knows who he is, the resident writer who thinks Gabriel Garcia Marquez hung the moon. With his long dark hair and little pussy tickler of a mustache, he reminds the old poet of a charming character in The Princess Bride. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. He's wearing a yellow jacket with a reflective stripe running down the back and ridiculously tight running pants. He's going like a house afire, the old poet's mother might have said, or like the clappers. Now here initially my first thought is maybe Stephen King is throwing a nod to The Mist, one of his other pieces of work, uh, in which there are these horrific monsters that no one actually ever gets a good look at that reside within this just ambiguous mist around this town. Uh, also, oof, pussy tickler mustache, my goodness. Also, fun fact for those who don't know, Gabriel Garcia Marquez is a Colombian uh, novelist, short story writer, screenwriter, and journalist. Clappers make her think of bells, and her gaze returns to the streetlight directly across from her. She thinks the runner doesn't hear the silver above him. These bells don't ring. It's wrong because it's prosy, but it's a start. She has managed to get her fingers under the lid of the poem. She needs to go inside, get her notebook, and start scratching. She sits a few moments longer, though, watching the silver circles revolve around the streetlights. Halos, she thinks. I can't use that word, but that's what they look like, goddammit. There is a final glimpse of the runner's yellow jacket, then he's gone into the dark. The old poet struggles to her feet, wincing at the pain in her hips, and shuffles into the house. Chapter 1, Part 3, Page 4 Jorge Castro kicks it up a bit. He's got his second wind now, lungs taking in more air endorphins lit up. Just ahead is the park, scattered with old-fashioned lamps that give off a mystic yellow glow. There's a small parking lot in front of the deserted playground, now empty except for a passenger van with its side door open and a ramp sticking out into the wet asphalt. Near its foot is an elderly man in a wheelchair and an elderly woman down on one knee, fussing with it. Jorge pulls up for a moment, bending over, hands grasping his legs just above the knees, getting his breath back and checking out the van. The blue and white license plate on the back has a wheelchair logo on it. The woman, who is wearing a quilted coat and a kerchief, looks over at him. At first, Jorge isn't sure he knows her. The light in this small auxiliary parking lot isn't that good. Hello, got a problem? She stands up. 
The old guy in the wheelchair, dressed in a button-up sweater and flat cap, gives a feeble wave. Now here immediately with the word feeble, my mind goes to desperation, pathetic, pity, things like that. Very obviously meant to have the reader feel sympathy for this old guy here. The battery died, the woman says. It's Mr. Castro, isn't it? Jorge? Now he recognizes her. It's Professor Emily Harris, who teaches English literature. Or did. She might now be emerita. I personally was not familiar with emerita, uh, and anytime I come across vocabulary I don't know in his books, I always look them up. Uh, so for those who don't know, emerita is a person who has formally held office, retired, and the title is kept as a sign of honor. And that's her husband, also a teacher. He didn't realize Harris was disabled, hasn't seen him around campus much, different department in a different building, but believes the last time he did, the old guy was walking. Jorge sees her quite often at various faculty get-togethers and culture vulture events. Jorge has an idea he's not one of her favorite people, especially after the departmental meeting about the now-defunct poetry workshop. That one got a little contentious. Yes, it's me, he says. I'm assuming you two would like to get home and dry off. That would be nice, Mr. Harris says, or maybe he's also a professor. His sweater is thin and he's shivering a little. Think you could push me up that ramp, kiddo? He coughs, clears his throat, coughs again. His wife, so crisp and authoritative in department meetings, looks a bit lost and bedraggled, forlorn. Jorge wonders how long they've been out here and why she didn't call someone for help. Maybe she doesn't have a phone, he thinks, or left it at home. Old people can be forgetful about such things. Although she can't be much more than 70. Her husband in the wheelchair looks older. Now in this passage, he continues with that kind of pitifully sad uh, appearance of these elder folks, even though at 70, depending on you know medical conditions, comorbidities, things like that, forgetfulness uh, and these you know issues not necessarily present. And he feels that nagging a little bit in the back of his mind that this seems a bit severe of a situation for how these people look. Also, if you heard the little mau mau in there, that is my cat Trax making her debut. I think I can help with that. Break off? Yes, certainly, Emily Harris says, and stands back when Jorge grabs the handles and swings the wheelchair around so it faces the ramp. He rolls it back ten feet, wanting to get a running start. Motorized wheelchairs can be heavy. The last thing he wants is to get it halfway up, only to lose momentum and have it roll back. Or, God forbid, tip over the side and spill the old guy on the pavement. Here we go, Mr. Harris. Hang on, there may be a bump. Harris grasps the side rails, and Jorge notices how broad his shoulders are. They look muscular beneath the sweater. He guesses that people who lose the use of their legs compensate in other ways. Jorge speeds at the ramp. So here we already see kind of an interesting contrast, and it very well could be explained by the fact that, yes, if he can't use his legs, upper body strength will overcompensate, things like that. But I think Jorge is kind of feeling the disconnect where things just aren't adding up. Hi-ho, Silver, Mr. Harris cries cheerfully. The first half of the ramp is easy, but then the chair starts to lose momentum. Jorge bends, puts his back into it, and keeps it rolling. As he does this neighborly chore, an odd thought comes to him. 
The state's license plates are red and white, and although the Harrises live on Ridge Road just like he does, he often sees Emily Harris out in her garden, the plates on their van are blue and white, like those of the neighboring state to the west. Something else that's strange. He can't remember ever seeing this van on the street before, although he's seen Emily sitting ramrod straight behind the wheel of a trim little Subaru with Obama sticker on the back bump. As he reaches the top of the ramp, bent almost horizontal now, arms outstretched and running shoes flexed, a bug stings the back of his neck. Feels like a big one from the way heat is spreading out from the source. Maybe a wasp, and he's having a reaction. Never had one before, but there's a first time for everything. And all at once, his vision is blurring and the strength is going out of his arms. His shoes slip on the wet ramp and he goes to one knee. So now we have further contrast here where things, again, are just not adding up. Why do they have different license plates? Is it the handicap thing? Is it the other state? Do we really know what's going on here? Not really. Um, and then in need immediately, immediately. Those of you who know King know that this is not going to be a benign little bug sting. So my first thought was a needle poke immediately. And then when they talk about the heat going out the back, there are a lot of opiates in human medicine that can cause symptoms like that. Red flag. Wheelchair is going to back roll right on top of me, but it doesn't. Rodney Harris flips a switch and the wheelchair rolls inside with a contented hum. Harris hops out, steps spryly around it, and looks down at the man kneeling on the ramp with his hair plastered to his forehead and drizzle wetting his cheeks like sweat. Then Jorge collapses on his face. And just like that, folks, we see the ride that we have all been taken on. Uh, this man who is supposedly, you know, bedraggled, forlorn, weak, feeble, pitiful, sad, forlorn. All these adjectives meant to invoke sympathy from a bystander or us, the reader. Now immediately goes out the window as this man hops out, steps spryly around the wheelchair. We have been had, folks. This has all been a con. Look at that, Emily cries softly. Perfect. Help me, Rodney says. His wife, wearing her own running shoes, takes Jorge's ankles. Her husband takes his arms. They haul him inside. The ramp retracts. Rodney, who really is also Professor Harris as it happens, slides into the left side captain's chair. Emily kneels and zip ties Jorge's wrists together, although this is probably a needless precaution. Jorge is out like a light, a simile of which the old poet would surely disapprove, and snoring heavily. And so now we're brought back to the attention of the previous muscles that were noted despite the disability, previously walking as well. All of these have now been proven true to Jorge. Additionally, he uses these short staccato sentences to really kind of hammer in that last nail of the finality of Jorge's current situation. All good? asks Rodney Harris, he of the Bell College Life Sciences Department. All good. Emily's voice is cracking with excitement. We did it, Roddy. We caught the son of a bitch. Language, dear, Rodney says. Then he smiles. But yes, indeed we did. He pulls out of the parking lot and starts up the hill. The old poet looks up from her work notebook, which has a picture of a tiny red wheelbarrow on the front, sees the van pass, and bends back to her poem. The van turns in at 93 Ridge Road, home of the Harrises for almost 25 years. 
It belongs to them, not the college. One of the two garage doors goes up. The van enters the bay on the left. The garage door closes. All is once more still on Ridge Road. Mist revolves around the streetlights, like halos. Now, the halo imagery, despite how much the poet hates it, I think gives us two possible interpretations of Jorge Castro's storyline. I think he could either potentially, you know, he could lose his life here and pass to the other side, and that could be the meaning of the halo. However, it could also mean an impending savior of some kind that will come to rescue him. Chapter 1, Part 4, Page 7 Jorge regains consciousness by slow degrees. His head is splitting, his mouth is dry, his stomach is sudsing. He has no idea how much he drank, but it must have been plenty to have a hangover this horrible. And where did he drink it? A faculty party? A writing seminar getting together where he unwisely decided to imbibe like the student he once was? Did he get drunk after the latest argument with Freddy? None of those things seem right. Now, I really like the words that he chose here. Um, one, sudsing. His stomach is sudsing. That is palpable, understandably disgusting. Uh, and then imbibe truly literally just means to drink alcoholic beverages like that. So I think it's meant to show that he is not the student he once was. It shows maturity, growth, dignity, things like that. He opens his eyes, ready for morning glare that will send another blast of pain through his poor abused head, but the light is soft. Kind light, considering his current state of distress. He seems to be lying on a futon or yoga mat. There's a bucket beside it, a plastic floor bucket that could have come from Walmart or Dollar Tree. He knows what it's there for, and all at once he also knows what Pavlov's dogs must have felt like when the bell rang, because he only has to look at that bucket for his belly to go into spasm. He gets on his knees and throws up violently. There's a pause, long enough to take a couple of breaths, and then he does it again. For those who don't know, Pavlov's Dogs was a social experiment that was done um, and it really kind of developed what we now call classical conditioning, uh, most commonly used in animals even though we have moved in animal psychology over to operant conditioning. But what it is, is Pavlov uh, had this theory that we could induce a reaction if the stimuli was repetitive enough and gave a consistent response. So what he did was every time he fed his dogs, he would ring a bell. And then after a couple weeks to months of that, Anytime he rang the bell, his dogs would start salivating in anticipation of the meal. So truly, that's just relating to classical conditioning, stimuli, and response. It also speaks a lot to how we as humans are, in fact, animals when it comes down to it psychologically. Uh, and it really does come into play with how he was speaking earlier about how the body is not alive. It is a vessel, it is a machine, uh, and currently now we are comparing ourselves to animals or lesser cognitive beings relying more on instinct. His stomach settles, but for a moment his head aches so fiercely he thinks it will split open and fall in two pieces to the floor. He closes his watering eyes and waits for the pain to subside. Eventually it does, but the taste of vomit in his mouth and nose is rancid. Eyes still closed, he fumbles for the bucket and spits into it until his mouth is at least partially clear. He opens his eyes again, raises his head cautiously, and sees bars. He's in a cage. It's roomy, but it's a cage all right. Beyond it is a long room. The overhead lights must be on rheostat, because the room is dim. He sees a concrete floor that looks clean enough to eat off of, not that he feels like eating. 
The half of the room in front of the cage is empty. In the middle is a flight of stairs. There's a push broom leaning against one of them. Beyond the stairs is a well-equipped workshop with tools hung on pegs and a bandsaw table. There's also a compound miter saw. Nice tool, not cheap. Several hedge trimmers and clippers. An array of wrenches carefully hung from biggest to smallest. A line of chrome sockets on a work table besides a door going somewhere. All the usual home handyman shit, and everything looks well-maintained. Well-maintained or not used yet? There's no sawdust under the bandsaw table. Beyond it is a piece of machinery he's never seen before. Big and yellow and boxy, almost the size of an industrial HVAC unit. Jorge decides that's what it must be, because there's a rubber hose going through one paneled wall, but he's never seen one like it. If there's a brand name, it's on the side he can't see. The no sawdust under the bandsaw table further supports that this couple may not have done this before. This could be the first time these tools are being used for whatever purpose they have intended. Um, I'm not sure the significance of the HVAC unit. I don't know why they would try to hide the brand name or if it even is an HVAC unit. He looks around the cage and what he sees scares him. It isn't so much the bottles of Dasani water standing on an orange crate serving as a table. It's the blue plastic box squatting in the corner beneath the sloping ceiling. That's a porta john, the kind invalids use when they can still get out of bed but aren't able to make it all the way to the nearest bathroom. Jorge doesn't feel capable of standing yet, so he crawls to it and lifts the lid. He sees blue water in the bowl and gets a whiff of disinfectant strong enough to make his eyes start watering again. He closes it and knee walks back to the futon. Even in his current fucked up state, he knows what the Porter John means. Someone intends for him to be here a while. He has been kidnapped. Not by one of the cartels, as in his novel Catalepsy, and not in Mexico or Colombia either. Crazy as it seems, he has been kidnapped by a couple of elderly professors one of them a colleague, and if this is their basement, he's not far from his own house where Freddy would be reading in the living room and having a cup of, but no, Freddy is gone, at least for now, left after the latest argument in his usual huff. He examines the crisscrossed bars. They are steel and neatly welded. It must be a job done in this very workshop. There's certainly no jail cells are us that such an item could be ordered from, but the bars look solid enough. He grabs one in both hands and shakes it. No give. He looks at the ceiling and sees white panels drilled with small holes. Soundproofing. He sees something else, too. A glass eye peering down. Jorge turns his face up to it. Are you there? What do you want? So what we've got so far, just from his description of the room, is we know that he is stuck in this cage, completely sealed in, the basement he's in is soundproofed, so unless they have audio recording on the camera, his captors can see him, they may or may not be able to hear him, and outside of what is in his direct eyesight, he cannot see or hear anything either. Nothing. He considers shouting to be let out, but what would that accomplish? Do you put someone in a basement cage, it must be the basement, with a puke bucket and a porta john if you mean to come running down the stairs at the first shout saying, sorry, sorry, big mistake? He needs to pee. His back teeth are floating. He gets to his feet, helping his legs by holding onto the bars. 
Another bolt of pain goes through his head, but not quite as bad as the ones he felt when he swam back to consciousness. He shuffles to the port john lifts the lid, unzips, and tries to go. At first he can't, no matter how bad the need. Jorge has always been private about his bathroom functions, avoids herd urinals when he goes to the ballpark, and he keeps thinking of that glass eye staring at him. His back is turned, and that helps a little, but not enough. He counts how many days are left in this month, then how many days until Christmas, good old Feliz Navidad, and that does the trick. He pisses for almost a full minute, then grabs one of the Dasani bottles. He swirls the first mouthful around and spits it into the disinfected water, then gulps the rest. He goes back to the bars and looks across the long room, the vacant half just beyond the cage, the stairs, then the workshop. It's the bandsaw and the miter saw his eyes keep coming back to. Maybe not nice tools for a caged man to be contemplating, but hard not to look at them. Hard not to think of the high wind a bandsaw like that makes when it's chewing through pine or cedar. He remembers his run through the misty drizzle. He remembers Emily and her husband. He remembers how they decked him and then shot him up with something. After that, there's nothing but a swatch of black until he woke up here. So I thought this was really interesting. He spelled decked, D-E-K-E-D. This whole time I thought it was D-E-C-K-E-D. So it's not. Turns out decking is actually an ice hockey term that truly means to knock someone out of position. Who knew? Why? Why would they do a thing like that? Do you want to talk? He calls to the glass eye. I'm ready when you are. Just tell me what you want. Nothing. The room is dead silent except for the shuffle of his feet and the tink tink of the wedding ring he wears against one of the bars. Not his ring. He and Freddy aren't married. At least not yet, and maybe never the way things are going. Jorge slipped the ring off of his father's finger in the hospital minutes after Poppy died. He has worn it ever since. How long has he been here? He looks at his watch, but that's no good. It's a wind-up, another remembrance he took when his father died, and it had stopped at 1.15. A.M. or P.M., he doesn't know, and he can't remember the last time he wound it. The Harrises, Emily and Ronald, or is it Robert? He knows who they are, and that's kind of ominous, isn't it? It might be ominous, he tells himself. Now this, I feel you can really hear kind of the desperation in his voice to remember who these people are, what happened to him, um, and that, that feeling of fear, he thinks it's ominous. And then, you know, the sane, calmer, more level-headed self comes back and says, it might be ominous that you know these people. It might not be. I think he's trying to find a benefit to knowing his captors. Since there's no scent shouting or screaming in a soundproof room, and it would bring his headache back, raving, he sits down on the futon and waits for something to happen. For someone to come and explain what the fuck. Chapter 1, Part 5, Page 10 The stuff they shot him up with must still be floating around in his head, because Jorge falls into a doze, head down and spittle slipping from one corner of his mouth. Sometime later, still 1.15 according to his poppy's watch, a door opens up, above, and someone starts down the stairs. Jorge raises his head, another bolt of pain, but not so bad, and sees black, low-top sneakers, ankle socks, trimmed brown pants, then a flowered apron. It's Emily Harris, with a tray. Jorge stands up. What is going on here? She doesn't answer, only sets the tray down about two feet from the cage. 
On it is a bulgy brown envelope stuck into the top of a big plastic go cup, the kind you fill with coffee for a long drive. Next to it is a plate with something nasty on it, a slab of dark red meat floating in even darker red liquid. Just looking at it makes Jorge feel like vomiting again. If you think I'm going to eat that, Emily, think again. She makes no reply, only takes the broom and pushes the tray along the concrete. There's a hinged flap in the bottom of the cage. They've been planning this, Jorge thinks. The go-cup falls over when it hits the top of the flap, which is only four inches or so high. Then the tray goes through. The flap claps shut when she pulls the broom back. The meat swimming in the puddle of blood looks to be uncooked liver. Emily Harris straightens up, puts the broom back, turns, and gives him a smile. As if they are at a fucking cocktail party or something. I'm not going to eat that, Jorge repeats. You will, she says. With that, she goes back up the stairs. He hears a door close, followed by a snapping sound that's probably a bolt being run. Looking at the raw liver makes Jorge feel like yurking some more, but he takes the envelope out of the go-cup. It's something called cachava. According to the label, the powder inside makes a nutrient-dense drink that fuels your adventures. Jorge feels he's had enough adventures in the last however long to last a lifetime. He puts the packet back in the go-cup and sits on the futon. He pushes the tray to one side without looking at it. He closes his eyes. Chapter 1, Part 6, Page 11 He dozes, wakes, dozes again, then wakes for real. The headache is almost gone and his stomach has settled. He winds Poppy's watch and sets it for noon, or maybe for midnight. Doesn't matter. At least he can keep track of how long he's here. Eventually someone, maybe the male half of this crazy professor combo, will tell him why he's here and what he has to do to get out. Jorge guesses it won't make a whole lot of sense because these two are obviously loco. Lots of professors are loco. He's been in enough schools on the writer-in-residence circuit to know that. But the Harrises take it to a whole other level. Eventually, he plucks the packet of cachava from the go-cup, which is obviously meant for mixing the stuff up with the remaining bottle of Dasani. The cup is from Dylan's, a truck stop in Redland where Jorge and Freddy sometimes have breakfast. He would like to be there now. He'd like to be in Ayers Chapel, listening to one of Reverend Gallatin's boring-ass sermons. He'd like to be in a doctor's office, waiting for a proctological exam. He would like to be anywhere but here. He has no reason to trust anything the crazy Harrises give him, but now that the nausea's worn off, he's hungry. He always eats light before running, saving a heavier caloric intake for when he comes back. The envelope is sealed, which means it's probably okay, but he looks it over carefully for pinpricks, hypopricks, before tearing it open and pouring it into the go-cup. Hypo here referring to hypodermic or needle pinpricks. He adds water, closes the lid, and shakes well, as the instructions say. He tastes, then chugs. He doubts very much if it's been inspired by ancient wisdom, as the label says, but it's fairly tasty. Chocolate, like a frappe, if frappes were plant-based. When it's gone, he looks at the raw liver again. He tries pushing the tray back out through the flap, but at first he can't because the flap only swings in. He works his fingernails under the bottom and pulls it up. He shoves the tray out. Hey, he shouts at the glass eye peering down at him. Hey, what do you want? Let's talk. Let's work this out. Nothing.
So here we definitely see further desperation, what I think is bargaining with the let's talk this out thing as he sits and looks at this disgusting uncooked liver in a pool of its own blood. Um, also, aren't frappes plant-based if they are indeed made from coffee beans? Food for thought. I think it's interesting here that they try really hard to get you to connect back to the old poet because they talk about getting his fingers under the flap to shove the food back through that he's refusing and that's exactly how the poet described uh, getting into her newest poem. Um, and currently she's the only known, well unbeknownst to her, witness to what has happened to Jorge. Chapter 1, Part 7, Page 12. Six hours pass. This time, it's the male Harris who descends the stairs. He's in pajamas and slippers. His shoulders are broad, but he's skinny the rest of the way down, and the pajamas, decorated with fire trucks like a child's, flap on him. Just looking at this old dude gives Jorge Castro a sense of unreality. Can this really be happening? It's hard not to see the benefit of having his captors come down at various points in the day, because now... We know for certain we have six hours under our belt, plus whatever we missed when he was out. And we know we're getting towards evening or nighttime because we are in pajamas and slippers. The majority of this passage, I really think, is to help establish time frame for our victim here. What do you want? Harris makes no reply, only looks at the rejected tray on the concrete floor. He looks at the flap, then back to the tray. A couple more times for good measure. Tray, flap, flap, tray. Then he goes to the room and pushes it back in. Jorge has had enough. He holds the flap and shoves the tray back out. The blood puddle splashes one cup of Harris's PJ bottoms. Harris lowers the broom to push it back, then decides that would be a zero-sum game. He leans the broom against the side of the stairs again and prepares to mount them. There's not much to him below those broad shoulders, but the deceitful motherfucker looks agile enough. As we go through the stages of grief, I think we just hit anger. We are past the denial stage. He is bargaining for his life, and he is mad. Come back, Jorge says. Let's talk about this man to man. Harris looks at him and gives the sigh of a long-suffering parent dealing with the recalcitrant toddler. You can get the tray when you want it, he says. I believe we've established that. I'm not eating it. I already told your wife. Besides being raw, it's been sitting at room temperature for... He looks at Poppy's watch. Over six hours. The crazy professor makes no reply to this, only climbs the stairs. The door shuts. The bolt runs. Snap. Chapter 1, Part 8, Page 13. It's 10 o'clock by Poppy's watch when Emily comes down. She swapped the trim brown pants for a floral wrapper and her own pair of slippers. Can it be the next night, Jorge thinks? Is that possible? How long did that shot put me out? Somehow the loss of time is even more upsetting than looking at that congealing blob of meat. Losing time is hard to get used to, but there's something else he can't get used to. She looks at the tray, looks at him, smiles, turns to go. Hey, he says, Emily. She doesn't turn around, but she stops at the foot of the stairs, listening. I need some more water. I drank one bottle and used the other to mix that shake with. It was pretty good, by the way. No more water until you eat your dinner, she says, and climbs the stairs. Chapter 1, Part 9, Page 13 Time passes. Four hours. 
His thirst is becoming very bad. He's not dying of it or anything, but there's no doubt he's dehydrated from vomiting, and that shake, he can feel it coating the sides of his throat. A drink of water would wash that away, even just a sip or two. He looks at the port john but he's a long way from trying to drink disinfected water, which I have now pissed in twice, he thinks. He looks up at the lens. Let's talk, okay? Please. He hesitates, then says, I'm begging you. He hears a crack in his voice. A dry crack. Nothing. So here we are flip-flopping between kind of depression, sadness over his situation, as well as bargaining, begging, pleading, willing to try just about anything to get out, um, or at least get his needs met. Chapter 1, Part 10, Page 14. Two more hours. Now the thirst is all he can think about. He's read stories about how men adrift on the ocean finally start drinking what they're floating on, even though drinking seawater is a quick trip to madness. That's the story, anyway, and whether it's true or false doesn't matter in his current situation, because there's no ocean for almost a thousand miles. There is nothing here but the poison in the portageon. At last, Jorge gives in. He works his fingers under the flap, props himself on one arm, and reaches for the tray. At first, he can't quite grasp it because the edge is slippery with juice. Instead of pulling it toward him, he only succeeds in pushing it a little farther out on the concrete. He strains and finally pinches a grip. He pulls the tray through the flap. He looks at the meat as red as raw muscle, then closes his eyes and picks it up. It flops against his wrists, cold. Eyes still closed, he takes a bite. His gorge starts to spasm. Now here for sure I think we're in desperate, desperate times. The fact that he calls it juice instead of the blood that we as the reader know for certain that this is, I think he's trying to make it easier for himself and this is all desperate, hopeless survival. Don't think about it, he tells himself. Just chew and swallow. It goes down like a raw oyster or a mouthful of phlegm. He opens his eyes and looks up at the glass lens. It's blurry because he's crying. Is that enough? Nothing. And it really wasn't a bite, only a nibble. There's so much left. Why, he shouts, why would you? What purpose? Now I have to agree with him here. Um, and obviously seeing a grown man cry, that's a pretty significant moment in this novel. Um, but I also don't understand the purpose. My theory is that there are there's a lot of nutritional benefit to eating things like river raw or cooked. So I don't know if they're trying to fatten him up and utilize him for his athletic ability or what. If this is just straight torture and these are very mentally ill folks. Nothing. Maybe there's no speaker, but Jorge doesn't believe that. He thinks they can hear him as well as see him, and if they can hear him, they can reply. I can't, he says, crying harder. I would if I could, but I fucking can't. Yet he discovers that he can. Bite by bite, he eats the raw liver. The gag reflex is bad at first, but eventually it goes away. Only that's not right, Jorge thinks, as he looks at the puddle of congealing red jelly on the otherwise empty plate. It didn't go away. I beat it into submission. 
Now this is interesting in another form of type of uh, psychotherapy type of thing. Beating your fears into submission is often what we call immersion therapy, where we force people to do things that make them uncomfortable to the point where it doesn't evoke such a strong discomfort response. Uh, so he just inadvertently gave himself a lot of immersion therapy to be able to eat this raw liver, survive, and hopefully get some water out of the deal. He holds the plate up to the glass eye. At first, there's more nothing. Then the door to the upstairs world opens and the woman descends. Her hair is in rollers. There's some sort of night cream on her face. In one hand, she holds a bottle of Dasani water. She puts it down on the concrete out of Jorge's reach, then grabs the broom. Drink the juice, she says. Please, Jorge whispers. Please don't. Please stop. Professor Emily Harris of the English department, perhaps now emerita, just teaching the occasional class or seminar as well as attending departmental meetings, says nothing. The calm in her eyes is, for Jorge, the convincer. It's like the old blues song says, crying ain't pleading don't do no good. In my humble opinion, I don't think she deserves that title emerita. Uh, as a professor, whether or not she holds that title and participates, this woman has no honor inside of her body. He tilts the plate and slides the jelly juice into his mouth. A few drops splash onto his shirt, but most of the blood goes down his throat. It's salty and makes his thirst worse. He shows her the plate, empty except for a few red smears. He expects her to tell him to eat that, too. To scoop it up with his finger and suck it like a clot lollipop but she doesn't. She tips the bottle of Dasani on its side and uses the push broom to roll it to the flap and through. Jorge seizes it, twists the cap, and drinks half in a series of gulps. Ecstasy. She leans the broom back against the side of the stairs and starts up. What do you want? Tell me what you want and I'll do it, swear to God. She pauses for a moment, long enough to say a single word. Maricon. Then she continues up the stairs. The door shuts. The lock snaps. End of chapter one. Holy wow, you guys. So much went down in this chapter. Stephen King truly is a wordsmith. Thank you so much for sticking with me. So I did look up uh, Maricon, and it sounds like it's actually a homophobic slur. So initially, first motive could be one of two things. Is it because he is a gay man in an on-again, off-again relationship with another man? Or is it ancestral related? Obviously, Jorge is born and bred in the United States. It states in the first chapter. However, he obviously has some Hispanic roots, a passion for Hispanic culture, uh, based on how he lives his life, how he teaches, who he respects, all of that good stuff. So whether this is racial um, or sexual orientation driven, that motive is going to be scathing. And these are things that people cannot change about themselves. So I'm curious to see how that plays out. Thank you so much for joining me this week, guys. And please join me again next Sunday for chapter two of Stephen King's Holly. We'll do the exact same way we did today, but if you have ideas for ways I can make this better in terms of audio formatting, um, even the way that I'm reading, please drop a line, let me know. I want to make this as engaging as possible for you, the listeners, uh, and I want to get as much feedback as possible. This is a brand new podcast for me, so speak up, let me know what you like, what you don't like, and please, please join me next week for some more Hocus Pocus. Don't forget to like and subscribe.